Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest has been in the leather community since 1988. He holds the title of Mr. Palm Springs Leather 2011 and is the founder and creator of Leather Sex Conversations, a monthly talk where individuals within the leather scene share their personal stories. He's also the author of a new book coming out soon entitled 20th Century Leatherman, An Argument, a History, a Love Story. A friendly reminder to those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more Leather Talk. Expression, jaw set, eyes downcast, a slight smile, was one of the things that Farley loved most about the boy, speaking as it did of his complete trust, obedience, and submission. That Friday night, Ryan had not even looked up as Farley came out of the darkness, stepped behind the boy, and applied first the leather hood and then the gag. Farley had clipped the leash onto the collar that Ryan now wore. The collar was custom-made, braided latigo about the width of a thumb that ended in two loops. The two loops were secured with a padlock. Farley had the only key. Awesome. And we're going to talk a little bit about that excerpt in just a bit. But before we get started here with that, I want to welcome you to the show, Drew. How are you doing today? I'm doing really, really good. (laughs) Today was a good day all around. It was great weather, actually, out here in L.A. I don't know if you had the same where where you're at. It was perfect. Could not have been better. For those who might not be familiar with you, would you mind just giving us a little snapshot of who you are? Sure. Uh, My name is Drew Kramer. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm a gay man, and I'm 56 years old. I live in Palm Springs, And I've lived uh, in the desert for going on 13 years now. Before here, most of my adult life was spent in uh, New York City, where I was involved in the leather community there. Every Saturday night that I was in town meant I would leather up and go to the lure. uh, of sake of blessed memory, uh, no longer with us. And I, I grew up in a rural part of Pennsylvania where there were way more cows than people um, <laughs> called Bucks County. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Well, Drew, let's talk a little bit about the excerpt that you uh, just read from. This is from a book that you're putting together. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, right now, the book is with my editor and publisher, And I am hoping that I'm going to launch it, uh, spring it on an unsuspecting world at Claw 21 in November Mm -hmm. in the city of Los Angeles. Ah, yes, I heard that Claw is happening here in Los Angeles this year. Yes. Uh, Very cool. How long have you been working on this book? 
I actually, uh, in the before time, before lockdown, I did a thing here in Palm Springs at the LGBTQ Community Center mm-hmm. uh, called Leather Sex Conversations. And uh, it was the first Friday of every month, and I would get people I thought were interesting to come to Palm Springs or come to the center if they lived here in Palm Springs. And basically, an hour and a half was their time. Mm-hmm. And the very last person was this guy named Alex Ironrod. And Alex is a writer, and he's possibly more prolific than, I don't know, Stephen King. Uh-huh. All the leather BDSM-themed books that he's he's put out over the years. And he only started to write when he was in his late 60s, right? You know, like, for something to do. And they're really, really quite enjoyable. But anyway... He was the first Friday in March presenter at Leather Sex Conversations. And he basically, he talked about his writing and his process. And then he said, you know, all of you should do this. All of you should do this. You should write your life. Write your leather life. Write about your fantasies. Write about what's important to you. Write about, you know, people you have known and experiences you have had. Because no one else is going to. Uh And one day, all that's going to go with you. Yeah. Wow. And I heard that, and I just thought, okay, yeah, maybe sometime soon. You know, I'm pretty busy right now, but maybe sometime. Yeah, that is something I'd like to do. And then the state of California shut down, and what do you know? (laughs) You've got some time on your hands now. (laughs) I have quite a bit of time. And so, as Sir Alex Ironrod suggested, you know, first I thought about characters uh, Mm -hmm. and really just spending time getting to know them, putting flesh on their bones, and kind of like letting them tell me about themselves and who they were. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I thought of a story, how these characters might interact, which I I think was a really good piece of advice that Alex gave was, a good story has a bad guy. Uh You know, it's got to have a villain. It can't be like, boy meets boy, they fall in love, they move in, they have an argument, they make up, everything is happy. Yeah. You know, there's got to be a villain in the story. And so the last piece of the puzzle was figuring out who that was. And because part of what my characters were going through was the AIDS crisis, you know, which which had a huge shaping formative impact on my life, all of that was especially present to me as we were stepping through the door of the second worldwide pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Life-changing pandemic that I've, I've known in my life. And, you know, if you think about what the world was like last March, it was really scary. Yeah. You know, and every day there was some new thing to adjust to. And the information, you couldn't always rely on it. And most of, you know, the, the, there was an effort to sort of like figure out things on your own or just go into deep denial because all that was way too much, you know, for you to handle on that particular day. And yeah, so that, you know, certainly like had its effects. 
on, on what I was writing also. So in, in many ways, are you saying that this book is sort of autobiographical in the sort of like historical fiction kind of platform? Yes, no, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I sort of like describe it as almost but not quite a true story. Mm-hmm. Because everything that happens in the book either happened to me, I was there when it happened, I knew all these people, you know, or or stories that people told me along the lines of like, oh my God, last night was so amazing. I have to tell you about it, you know. So at some point, these things did happen to your knowledge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the paragraph that you chose to share with us at the beginning earlier in the episode today. I'm curious to know why you chose that excerpt specifically. Well, it was really, really tough because, I mean, it's it's pretty low-key considering some of the things that go on in my book. Right after that, uh, Ryan is restrained down to a fuck bench mm-hmm. and Farley brands his ass. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's sort of like the prelude to that. And afterwards, they both go off to the mine shaft together. Mm. But I, I, I chose that paragraph because I think it goes to the essence of their relationship. Because essentially, they're, they're two men who, you know, Farley took Ryan home from a bar. And their relationship goes from there. Mm-hmm. But they really don't know each other as people. They've never had the conversation of like, so where'd you grow up? And, oh, you know, dated many guys before me and, you know, that kind of thing. That never happened. Largely because Farley doesn't want it to happen. um, Because he doesn't want to clutter up the special thing they have with all that domesticity. But what they do have is, I think, and I hope readers will think, you know, pretty special and beautiful. I, I, I thought it was interesting that you chose that paragraph. And I also read a little bit of your of your blog, the uh, Single Tales. Single Tales, that's right. I read a little <laughs> bit of your blog, Single Tales, and I think it's really interesting that the way you pull readers in, and I don't know if you intentionally do this, but you know, there's several ways to to get people's attention. And one of the ways I think is the least effective is to talk at people. And it seems to me like when I'm reading your writing that you draw us into a narrative and make us like a part of it. And it's like we're watching a movie kind of thing. And that's sort of what I want to do with this podcast. Um, and in many ways, the same reasons that you were doing your your leather sex talks over in Palm Springs is I really want to hear personal stories. And I don't want these stories to go with people when they pass. And then that's the life of that story. You know, we'll never hmm. hear it again. I think that's really special that you had that same kind of intention, you know, prior to COVID. I, I guess we can call it BC. Can we call it BC before COVID? I like that. I, <laughs> I, I give it as the before time, capital before B time. before capital T time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to know you a little bit more, uh, Drew. So uh, I'm curious to know, you identify as a gay man. When was the first time that you kind of discovered for yourself that you might be different? And how was that growing up, you said, in Pennsylvania? Yes, Point Pleasant, Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, it was a rural area of Pennsylvania in Plumstead Township. There were far more cows than there were people. (laughs) But, important but, Mm -hmm. 
Eight miles south of me on the Delaware River, there was this town called New Hope, which was sort of Provincetown on the Delaware. It had been like this bohemian enclave, you know, lots of artists and writers. Uh, Dorothy Parker and the Algonquin Circle used to spend their summers there. And then it became a hippie haven during the 60s and 70s. And then the queers moved in. So there were, you know, in this little teeny tiny town of maybe 3,000 people, at one point back in the 70s, there were three gay bars, you know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a lot for a population of 3,000, I think. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, it was, it was kind of like Palm Springs, where it was a tourist town. Uh -huh. You know, people would come for the weekend uh, down from New York or up for, from Washington, D.C., um, and stay at, you know, this couple of gay hotels um, where there were bushes for cruising after dark, uh, which, you know, being a gay teenager, all that was really, really convenient and helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not only in access to gay sex, um, which yay for that, but also, uh, when I was 16, I started working in restaurants down in New Hope, cooking in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And that brought me into contact with lots and lots and lots of adult, grown-up gay men who were not tragic, lonely figures, but were happy and leading good lives and had a wide circle of friends and people who loved them. And so, you know, coming to terms with being gay was like falling off a log. I, I had no issues with that altogether uh, at all. You know, but at the same time, I decided to like sit on that information strategically to make it through high school and, you know, not to make my relationship with my parents any more complicated than it needed to be for the time being. I see. I see. So at that point, you had discovered that you were gay or were you still questioning? There was no questioning with me. I, I, I actually like had this weird, detailed, so many details that maybe we don't want to get into it now. Uh -huh. Here, dream when I was 13 years old. It okay. was basically like an end of the world flood, this cataclysm. And... In the dream, I drowned and I woke up and I was nocturnal ejaculating all over the place. Oh, and wow. I was like, I'm gay. I'm gay. I'm <laughs> Wait gay. a second. What? Uh, so, was this like a figurative flood for you? Or you. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I think that when. I think that death in a dream is symbolic mm -hmm. and what it meant in this case was sort of like I had this image of myself and the life that I would have, you know, I would grow up and meet a girl and we would get married and have kids. And that person that drew Kramer mm -hmm. died, mm -hmm. right? He's gone now. I see. But it wasn't the end. It was just, there's this different life that you're going to be having which is scary, but maybe not scary in a bad way. And yeah. Okay. Wow. Did you know at that point that this was 
a possibility for you? Or did it seem like something that was, you know, like you said, like still in a dream? Oh, yeah. I, I, it also, there was probably like first blush of puberty, you know, the, mm-hmm. the first few trickles of testosterone getting into my blood system. And it was very, very clear right away that, you know, that's why some men, some older teenage boys, you know, that I, that I saw, that's why I was so interested in them. That's, that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, there was an erotic component. Uh, even though, like, here's not thing. So I know I'm attracted to men, but I totally had no clue as to what the mechanics were of what two men did with each other sexually. Right. I had no idea, you know, <laughs> and wouldn't for several years to come until <laughs> I was picked up hitchhiking by this guy. And he was like, so, uh, so, uh, <gasps> Have you ever had a guy suck your dick? And I was like, Oh my no, God. Not yet. <laughs> this is why we don't go hitchhiking, Drew. <laughs> back back in the seventies, everybody was hitchhiking. And oh that experience, oh my God, Brandon. Uh, I could not have had a better first time out because Wow. I mean, I was even though he picked me up hitchhiking in his Jeep, uh, his orange Jeep Wrangler. I felt very much in control of what was happening, right? Uh And Uh he was like, so do you know someplace where we can go? And I was like, yes, go up here for about a mile. And off to the right goes this road called Bradshaw Road. And you want to take that and go in. And there was this like pond uh, off Bradshaw Road. You know, so he parked his Jeep. We walked through the woods. And it's this beautiful day in late spring early summer the sun was shining through the green canopy of the trees and he took down my pants and he gave me a blow job and oh wow i had no idea that that was a thing right uh-huh so much so that when i came which was pretty quick i didn't know what was happening and i thought that i was peeing uh-huh. Right. I was like, not now, not now. This is awful timing. Does he <laughs> like that? He seemed to like what was happening. So I yeah. was like, does he like what, that I'm peeing in his mouth? But wow. You know, you know even uh, like afterwards, he, he went to kiss me and I didn't know how to kiss. <laughs> so I like kept my teeth clenched, you know, and just sort of like moved my lips around. And he was like, so you don't like kissing guys, huh? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so at this point, you're like, what, a teenager then? Uh, I am 15, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah, actually, that that's not too uncommon. I think the first time I kissed anybody, I was honestly like 18 years old. <laughs> It's hard to believe now, but um, but yeah, wow, how interesting. So that was your first like sexual experience with another man, then. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, now I'm curious to know, wh- were you religious at all? Because I was, <laughs> I was sort of stalking you a little bit through the internet and reading different blog posts of yours. And there's one back from maybe about ten years ago or so where. I see that you have like a prayer written out and I'm just curious what your spiritual journey is and if you came from a religious family. Uh, Yes, a deeply religious family and that faith is one I 
carry with me to this day, mm-hmm. namely the Episcopal Church, okay, which is part of the Anglican Communion, which is the Church of England, and um, I consider myself really, really lucky to be an Episcopalian because you know the the Church of England came out of violence and bloodshed over what people believed. And as a result, when they were sort of figuring out how are we going to run this church, right? Elizabeth I, Queen of England, she said two things. Number one, I love music. We're going to have music. We're going to have gorgeous, beautiful, wonderful music. And when it comes to dogma, you know, questions of what you have to believe to go to heaven, what she said on that question was, we do not seek to build windows into men's souls. Hmm. You work that out for yourself. So it's basically like, here are the teachings of Christ. Here is a loving community of faith that you could ask questions of and learn from, but, you know, make good choices kind of thing. So to your understanding at this age, was there any conflict then with you having like a gay sexual experience and being religious and spiritual? Uh, In 1977, 1977, eight years after Stonewall, um, the priest at my Episcopal church, the church that my family and I attended, who had been there for like 20 years, right? He retired, he left. And we got a new priest. And the new priest didn't, like, shout it from the highest mound, but he was gay, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't married, but he did have his friend, Kenneth. And he and Kenneth went on vacations together. And But there was one guy in my church, one guy, who basically was like, this is outrageous. Our priest is a homosexual. And he sent letters to everybody, every family in the parish, right? It was like, this is outrageous. We have to have a parish meeting about this. Uh-huh. Uh, and so one Sunday after church, we, you know, gather, you know, in the room, big room where we had coffee hour. And we all talked about it. And afterwards there was a vote. And, you know, the consensus was, he's a great priest. He gives a really good sermon. I like what he does to the liturgy. Our choir has never sounded so good. We're keeping him. Hmm. You know, and I'm 1977. I was like 13 years old, right? So, you know, I was like, okay, you know. (laughs) Wow. I, I mean, it seems so, I mean, so far, based off of what your story has been, it seems like you've had some pretty good representations of what being homosexual looks like. Oh, yeah. I I consider myself to be so incredibly lucky. I mean, there's magazine after magazine after magazine of bullets that I've uh, dodged with with so many things. And no idea how. I mean, even like when I came out to my dad when I was in my early 20s living in New York City. And I, you know, I, I thought it was just perfunctory. Like, I was sure that he had figured it out by then. But he hadn't. And... My father and I, both being people who cannot, will not have a great deal of uh, difficulty talking about our feelings, right? Uh 
I sort of like made the announcement and he was like, what, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm pretty sure. And pretty quickly we started talking about whether or not Leonard Bernstein was gay. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. So his concern for you was like at that, he wanted to know if you knew how your gaydar was essentially or no, no. His, his, his concern, the, the concern that he voiced was he was worried that I would never have the opportunity to live up to my potential in a world where being gay was condemned. And what did you think about that when he voiced that opinion to you? I was like, well, I don't know. I'm kind of doing all right. You know, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I live in New York. I have a job. Yeah. Um, but I, I just like, you know, that's such a loving dad thing, you mm-hmm. know. But in response to that, I said, well, you know, there, there are a lot of prominent people who are gay, dad, like, like Leonard Bernstein. You know, and he said, what? Leonard Bernstein is not gay. He has a wife and kids. And I was like, oh, dad. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. It means Leonard nothing. Bernstein is not gay. And I was like, yes, Leonard Bernstein is gay. How do you know Leonard Bernstein? That's, you know, we got on to the much more comfortable topic of taking the light off of us and our relationship. Mm. Let's put it on Leonard Bernstein potentially being gay. <laughs> <laughs> so did the spotlight ever come back to you? And did he have questions for you and more concerns? Or did he, he kind of leave it at that? Yeah, I mean, both of us are lifelong, you know, men who don't talk about their feelings. Mm-hmm. And even I left my adult life in New York City um, when my stepmother died. Uh, I moved back to Bucks County, back into my childhood bedroom, and I took care of my dad for the last five years of his life, which was incredibly difficult, yeah, incredibly challenging, incredibly lonely. You know, I was cut off from everybody I loved and cared about. And at the same time... Oh, my God, I would absolutely do those those five years over again because of the relationship that I enjoyed with my father during those years, Um, where at one point he like he called me at work and I was working in this this wood shop. I was a cabinet maker and he has them bring me off the shop floor. And they're like, Drew, your father's on the phone. You have to come right away. I was like, what? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, like, what happened? Yeah. I was like, Dad, Dad, it's me. What is it? What's going on? He said, McGreevy is gay. (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, McGreevy is gay. McGreevy, the governor of New Jersey, he's gay. It's all over the news. That's really good for you guys, right? (laughs) (laughs) What does he think? It's like a special club or something. (laughs) I love that. Gay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got one. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. (laughs) So your dad turned out to be quite an ally for you in that regard. Yeah, and and also like like beyond that. Even though no details were provided, mm-hmm. um, but when I moved in with him, you know, there were opportunities for me to engage with other leathermen, right? Mm-hmm. And I sort of said to myself, okay, how is this going to go? Are you going to leave the house in jeans and a sweatshirt 
and find some place to switch into your leathers. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. So I put on my leathers and I went and I was like, hey, dad, I'm going to go down to Philadelphia for the night. Hmm. And he was like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. You look, wow. You're all dressed up. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I'm all dressed up. Like, okay, we'll have a good time. He didn't even question that. No. Uh, real quick, you haven't mentioned mom yet. Is mom in the picture at all? Uh, my mother, the woman who gave birth to me, died when I was three and a half years old. Mm, okay. Um, a couple of years after that, my father met and married this woman, Rubina Mackay Cunningham, who had been in this country less than a year. Uh, she was an immigrant from Scotland, and she died on the night before my 12th birthday. Oh, wow. And my father remarried again. And my third mother, uh, second stepmother, I mean, they were married when I was 13. And she was also, like my father, a widow. She had gotten married, had a daughter. Her daughter was grown up. Her daughter had married and presented her with grandchildren. She, like, did that already. So the years between the time I was, you know, 13 when she came into my life, and 18, when I got the hell out of there and went to college, really, 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 really difficult. Really difficult for both of us. Why is that? Uh, and we went out of our way, you know, to make it difficult. <laughs> I see. Um, for each other. You know, because she, she was not interested at all in being mother to a teenage boy which uh -huh. who among us would be right who who the fuck would sign up for that <laughs> um, so she was there for for your dad more than for you oh yeah yeah okay you know and i i i think her reasoning was okay well how bad can this be and he's 13 so you know it won't be too long before he's out of there you know mm -hmm. which which in fact happened and what happened after i was out of there after i went to college I like wrote her a letter and I said, listen, we have a horrible relationship. I take responsibility for my role in making it horrible. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to give it another try, you know, I'm, I'm certainly open to that. And, you know, she called me when she got the letter and she said, absolutely, let's do that. And after that, we had a, we had a really good relationship. So, uh, I mean, to your knowledge, her concern with you being gay or straight or whatever, it was no concern of hers at this point. She actually, during, like, the bad times, she once found and read my journal. <laughs> of course like, you were a journaler. <laughs> this, this was, like, the absolute lowest point in our relationship. She found and read my journal and I said all this shit about her, and you know, well, that's her just, fault for reading your per. Your, you have to have an outlet somehow. Oh my god, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> I do. Um, I'm a teenager, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. I'm 18 years old. Yeah, right. Of course, I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she like found and read my journal, and there was this huge confrontation. Uh, about it and one of the things she said was something like i think i know what's really wrong with you 
you know, and we like looked at each other and I was like, well, maybe you're right. <laughs> but okay. after, after we mended our relationship, uh, you know, by the time I brought like my first boyfriend home, uh, that yeah. I brought home, she was like, she clearly liked him more than she liked me, you know, in many ways and definitely made him way feel welcome. So uh, you you already kind of alluded to this how you were you know like eighteen or 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 so and you're you're going out to travel in your leathers. At what point did you discover leather? Was it shortly after your first sexual experience, or was that later on in life? Well, I mean, I I can remember when I'm like eight, nine, ten years old, right, mm-hmm. watching Saturday morning cartoons. And when there was a plot point that involved a powerful man taking power away completely from another powerful man, so like Dr. Octopus has Spider-Man all chained up, I could not look away. And, you know, to this day, I could recite to you the plot of Josie and the Pussycats cartoons, you know, (laughs) that involved like bondage and domination. And then when adolescence hit and I realized I'm gay and everything else like this, at that point, it became really tricky, right? Because like I said, me accepting the fact that I was gay, not a big problem. But once I had like an erotic life centered on men, all this bondage and domination stuff figured into that. And that scared the bejesus out of me because that I thought was clearly wrong and sick and there was something wrong with me and I hoped it would go away and I didn't want to want what I wanted, right? So what, I mean, what what made you think that it was sick and wrong? Was it, did you feel like it was like sinful or you just didn't feel that it was natural? What was your thought process on that? Uh, It just seemed twisted and shameful, right? I mean, I remember Uh I used to have, you know, not even like jerk-off fantasies, but more like daydreams about my scoutmaster, right? Mr. Appleton, who was such a hot man. I mean, just sort of like five, nine, really well-built. He's like muscular, hairy, hairy, thick, hairy forearms, this perfect mustache, uh, and he smoked Marlboro Reds. And he was so good to me. You know, he sort of like took trouble with me because I was like a really awkward, dorky, very self-conscious, but also precocious teenager, right? Yeah. And he just sort of saw that I was an outsider with the other kids in my scout troop and blah, blah, blah. But he was, he was like really kind to me. I had these fantasies. We're out in the middle of the woods and I have him tied. So he's hugging a tree and I take off his belt and I start beating his ass with it. And he's like crying and begging me to stop. Wow. And yeah, so I like, why do, you know, am I... <laughs> Having these fantasies, yeah psychopath Mm -hmm. you know that i'm thinking these things about this man who's so good to me but a glorious thing happened where by an odd set of circumstances when i was 17 years old 
I discovered this stack of drummer magazines. Hmm. Where, where would you discover a stack of drummer magazines in your house? It, it wasn't in my house. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister was 13 years older than I am. Uh, I was. And she, when my mother died, I was three and a half. She was 16, 17 years old. And anyway, she freaked out a little bit because my parents did not do a good job of managing that. Because um, back in the 60s, you didn't tell the kids that their mother was dying. Uh, you just, when it happened, then that's when they'd know. She totally freaked out. She moved out. She lived on a commune uh, with a bunch of hippies. But anyway, she and I were very close. Also, when my mother died, she kind of like stepped into that role. Anyway, she at one point needed a place to live. And a friend of hers who was gay named Gary said, oh, you know, you can stay with me because Gary's partner, Gary's lover, Dwayne had died from AIDS. So Gary said, you can stay in Dwayne's room, but here's the thing. Don't touch any of Dwayne's stuff. You know, you can move all of his clothes over to one side in the closet to hang up your stuff, but I'm not ready to get rid of any of Dwayne's stuff, and maybe I never will be. So one day, I'm hanging out with her at Gary's house. But anyway, she was like, oh my God, I have to go pick up Gary at the airport. So you'll be all right here? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll find something to do. And what I found to do was this five-inch high stack of drummer magazines. And oh my God, you know, I discovered not only was I not the only one, there were a hell of a lot of us because like in the back of drummer there was all this listing of like leather bars and leather community clubs and organizations. And we all had our act together enough to like... Organize. <laughs> yeah, we were self-organized enough to publish an actual magazine, right? Yeah. Then I knew, and I just like absorbed all the information I could, like a sponge, right? Like I was studying for the SATs or something. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> I just knew that, like, okay, my people are out there, and they're waiting for me. All I have to do is bide my time, and I can go and find them. And after college, I wanted to go and live. You know, I didn't want to go home to Point Pleasant, Pennsylvania. I had my sights set on either Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., or New York City, because that's where there were leather bars, according to Drummer Magazine. Wow. So yeah. you had this you had this intention in your mind for for years. Oh yeah, for several years. It was not after not until I was out of college and living in Philadelphia that that I I found my way to uh, a leather bar for the first time. And what was that experience like? Knowing that there's this whole community behind you that you're out there looking for. I mean, was your heart just like thumping, walking up to the steps or? Absolutely. And it was also, oh, if I expected, I opened the door and everybody's like, Drew is here. Hooray. (laughs) It was not like that. Yeah. Uh, This was 1987. So it's the deep, dark years of the AIDS crisis. And all these men, you know, people talk about like, oh, in the leather tradition, there used to be mentoring and, you know, new people were meant. 
there was none of that because all these guys were either dying, worrying about dying, or caring for their friends and lovers who were dying. Yeah. You know, they did not have the emotional capacity to like, oh, hi, you're new. Let me take you under my wing. You know, mm-hmm. so there was none of that. I, I, I had to find my own way. But, you know, I didn't know that that's not the way it had been done. You know, if it ever, in fact, was that done. Nobody had told me that, like, oh, it, this is the way it goes. So I, I just sort of, like, assumed that, you know, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, you know, sort of, like, do my best to fit in. And and I, I, I did that, and that worked fine. What was your first night there like? Did you strike up any conversations? Did you get flogged? Did, what, what was the experience like? And was it any different than walking to, like, into a leather bar now? Uh, it was, Well, the first couple of times that the layout of the bike stop then, uh, and I think still now, but anyway, and it's down a dark alley because in at that time, something that nobody talks about, but there was a lot of stigma attached to leather. Okay. What do you mean by that? You didn't necessarily want your gay friends to know that you were into leather hmm. because even in the wider gay community, it was looked on as being sick. Hmm. Or worse than sick, ridiculous. You know, like in a lot of movies where it shows up, kink and BDSM is like a punchline. And so leather bars back then, it was sort of like in, you know, a good-sized city, there'd be the gayborhood, right, where there were gay restaurants and coffee houses, and that's where all the leather bar, uh, the gay bars were. Uh-huh. And then in the industrial section of town where nobody went to after night, uh, after dark, that's where the leather bar was. And that's where the bike stop was in Philadelphia. Uh, But anyway, you walk in off the street, and it's this bar only, you know, there's like this big motorcycle hanging from chains from the ceiling over the bar. Um, And the bartender's like, hey, how's it going? What What can I get you? Like, that's all. Then, so I went there a couple of times and like, Nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then I sort of noticed that people were, you know, coming in, talking to the bartender, and then they'd go to what I thought was the bathroom, but they never came out again. (laughs) So I made my way to the back of the bar, right? And there's this door, and I like, (laughs) creak open the door, (laughs) and there's this narrow stairs going down, because in the cellar underneath the bar... Underneath the bike stop was the pit stop. And it was dark and it was filled with smoke. And that's where the action was. It was terrifying and it was really sexy, you know, like as you move towards the bar to get yourself a beer, you were getting groped and guys were like, hot fucker, you know, things like that in your ear. Oh my God, it was so cool. Oh my uh, God, that is so- giving me so, I'm getting so hard right now. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're descending into like the inferno, but it's just like a bunch of like gay leather men who are just all there for the same reason, like that sexual energy. Yeah, and, and you know, especially, so even though like the, no, even the very first time, it was really noisy. There was lots of laughter. And they were telling each other stories, you know, because like all these guys knew each other. 
The really cool thing about the stigma that attached to being a Leatherman was the fact that it was like being a member of a really cool secret club, you know? And it's not like you had to know a secret password. You just had to know that the club is there down a dark alley in part of Philadelphia where nobody goes to after after 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Wow. That, that, that was, you know, and even like fl- things like flagging, right? The hanky coat and everything. Uh-huh. Today, in today's world, they don't make sense, right? Because, I mean, you don't even have to ask somebody because they put it in their profile, right? Right, right. But back then, it was part of this secret club kind of thing. Because I once, I mean, I was, when I was living in New York City, right? It was like Saturday morning, and I'm stopping at the coffee shop that I used to stop in. And this guy was ahead of me in line, and he's wearing thick black leather belt, really tight jeans, black boots, and in his back left pocket, I see the outline of a pair of handcuffs, right? Wow. Okay. And immediately, I reach for the black handkerchief in my back left pocket, and I move it over to my back right pocket, and (laughs) pretend to be looking over the selection of, like, pies and cakes that they have, you know, like, with my butt towards him. And sure enough, when I turn back around, he's, like, giving me a smile, and I gave him a smile. And, you know, then he, like, sort of made this gesture where, you know, he pointed to his watch and said gotta go to work or whatever and i was like okay catch you later you know and wow it i mean it was sort of like the grinder before a grinder <laughs> i mean like you you had to wear your profile in your back pocket kind of thing yeah, yeah you 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 know because it's a big world out there and you're part yeah. of this secret club so you know you can't go giving the sh- seeking secret handshake to everybody but you know and the other thing was when there was this miraculous thing that happened where you figured out that he was a leather man and he figured out that you were a leather man there really wasn't discussion of like what he into are we compatible could we make this work it was like okay where could we go to make this work who lives closest right Mm -hmm. um and then you just sort of like worked it out you know from there so okay this the your experience to me sounds I would say very different from my experience or maybe I guess I can only speak from my experience, but I'm, I'm guessing from a lot of the younger generation's experience coming into the leather and particularly in the, this kind of concept of consent. And it seems like the, your generation's idea of consent came down from like, we're in the secret club. We're going to basically wear our fetish on our sleeves kind of thing. And we can either make it work or make it not work. I mean, was there discussion like there is today? I, I mean, consent, I feel like, is a very thoroughly talked about topic. And, and you know, the, the colors and the flagging and, and all of that stuff is almost meaningless in some situations because you could go up to somebody and they're wearing a, you know, a, a yellow harness, for example, but they, they may not be into that fetish that just they're out there wearing that. Was it like that back then, too? Or... You know, it, 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 yes and no, uh-huh. uh, in that, I mean, it was kind of in part by entering into a leather space dressed in leather, 
that was sort of like, I don't want to say giving consent, but it sent a message of openness to consensual activities mm-hmm. that outside of leather space would not be on the table, would be a clear violation of consent. I see. But inside leather space, among leather men, let's give it a try. If I'm not into it, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. Right? So there was a sort of an intention that you would be open to experiencing something like this if you stepped into a place like that. Would you say it's because of, at that time, the exclusivity of it all? or Because, I mean, I, I would say it's not as exclusive as it was when you first came into leather. I mean, you walk into the bullet and there are people there that are not into leather, for example, and people of all different kinds of backgrounds and there for different reasons. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's it's not to, you know, and I, I don't want to fall into the trap of leather was so great now and then all you young people showed up and ruined it, right? Just, <laughs> no, I'm not no, saying that. I guess wrong. I just tried to understand the what your experience was like, because I think it is interesting historically to know, like, where it all came from, you know? Yeah. No, but I, I, I think that, I mean, the way I think about leather is it is and always has been a survival mechanism. I mean, back when it started after the Second World War with, like, I mean, before the war, if you are 16 years old, and you live in rural farming communities, right? Uh So there you are in Ames, Iowa, and you're gay. Your life is going to be lonely and miserable and terrifying every minute that somebody is going to figure that out. And you're going to either, you know, trick some poor girl in high school into marrying you so that she can spend her life wondering why she's not a good enough life, you know, wife to you. Um, your life is going to be horrible, right? Uh-huh. Then a great thing happens. Wars, you know, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and the United States <laughs> enters World War II. And young men and young women from across the country are sort of like plucked up out of these little farm towns and they're going through basic training and they're packed onto troop ships and they're in barracks and the gays found each other right so much so that like some general somewhere said oh my god you know the armed forces are filled with queers Hmm. and he was like we have to kick them all out and that went all the way up the chain of command to President Roosevelt, who basically said, there's a goddamn war on. <laughs> you know? yeah. Don't worry about it. So gay life during World War II is great. But then war's over and you're no longer in the armed forces and you're not going back to Iowa. And there you are. Like they discharge troops to L.A., San Francisco and New York. Right. Mm-hmm. So there you are in one of those three cities, and you're like, okay, I'm going to stay here, but how are you going to find the other gays, right? And motorcycles are cheap, so they started wearing, mo- you know, riding motorcycles. And then, and I swear, you know, this must have had something to do with it, Marlon Brando strides across the screen in leather and boots, hmm. 
the wild one, right? And they were all like, oh, that's what I desire, and that's the kind of man I desire to be. And then, you know, you're out riding your motorcycle in Orange County on a Sunday, and you stop at this little roadhouse to get a beer, and up rides this guy who's dressed like Marlon Brando wearing his motorcycle, you know, riding his motorcycle. Your friends, you know, (laughs) that's it. It just began, people begin to find each other this way. And that's, it seems like that's sort of planting the seed to grow this kind of culture. Yeah. You know, and keep in mind that like, if it was 1955, right, Brandon, and I, I know that you are gay, even though I'm gay, all I have to do is send an anonymous letter to your boss and your life is done. Yeah, over. Yeah. You're never going to work again. You're going to get thrown out of wherever you're living, you know? And so those two guys outside the roadhouse in Orange County, they found a way to, like, trust each other with their lives, you know? Yeah. And it's not just about surviving, but, oh, my God, you know, Leather provided those men back in the 1950s and 60s with a way of not just surviving, but having like rich, full, wonderful lives full of love. And during my time where, you know, there were no more anonymous letters, but there was the AIDS crisis to deal with, right? Right. I mean, leather was how many of us got through it, got through the worst imaginable thing that could happen, you know, to anyone. Well, right. it's interesting that you, the the way you kind of describe how leather came to be, and I think in some ways that explains some of like the more nonverbal communication because it was sort of necessary. Like, it's not like today, like you said, you can just be so open and out about it because you could like lose your job or you could lose your whole life, you know? Because if anybody finds out, that's a big deal back then. So for me, I guess that sort of explains the more of the nonverbal kind of communication with the flagging and the exclusivity of the, you know, going down into the cellar kind of thing and knowing that there's this kind of exclusive club. Um, Would you say that's the case? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, like the first several hundred sexual experiences with men that I had in my life, almost all of them were on the banks of the Delaware Canal that goes through New Hope, Pennsylvania, after midnight, you know, like one or two in the morning, with, you know, strange men twice my age. And there wasn't like, hey, how are you? I'm Drew. What are you into? What are you up for tonight? You know, it was just sort of like, you look at him, he looks at you. Okay, we hold eye contact for, you know, more than just like recognition or whatever. Let's move over and, you know, off the towpath into the darkness of the bushes. And, right. you know, it wasn't about like, so you're a top Rabala? You know, it was like, okay. Let's figure let's, this out. Let's do this. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah. I'm, I'm here to get my needs met. And hopefully uh, that'll get your need, needs met also. Right. Now, as you said, you know, when you first walked into your first experience at a leather bar, it was at, in like the heat of the, the AIDS epidemic. Is that right? Absolutely. So what was your experience like that coming into this scene that you had waited so long to come and be a part of? And you happened to come, I mean, at the, I don't want to say the worst time, but probably one of the worst times, right? I mean, because this is 
when the community is going through a plague, really. It, it And it was also, I mean, like... Or was it the best time? No, I mean, it was... The fact that we were all going through this terrible thing, it just made... You know, it's sort of like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Hmm. You know, all of us... I, I, during my early 20s on into my 30s, but especially in my early 20s, because like, there was no, well, there was, but he wasn't, you know, given any kind of a platform, but like, there was no equivalent of Dr. Fauci with, you know, the COVID epidemic. There were no good sources of information. You know, I mean, one source of information, a newspaper called the New York Native, the publisher of the New York Native, Charles Ortlib, did not believe that HIV caused AIDS. Huh. Wow. And so he would get all these crazy doctors who were basically like, no, it's people aren't dying because of this H quote HIV quote thing. What they're dying is because these toxic drugs that, you know, they're getting pumped into their bodies. Hmm. So, so there just wasn't information like there was today. I mean, I, I feel like we handled this COVID thing for as many as many people that we lost, unfortunately, of course, but in the one year, we have a vaccine. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Right? <laughs> Fucking believable. Yeah. You know, like Larry Kramer started ACT UP because he was, back in 1987, two years before I got to New York, there was this speaker series at the Lesbian and Gay Center in New York City. And one night, the speaker who was supposed to speak couldn't make it. So somebody was like, oh, who can we get? Oh, my God. Well, how about Larry Kramer? I'll give him a call. And, you know, he lives close by. So Larry walked over. And his concern at the time was like, we're not doing anything. Huh. You know, why aren't we doing anything? And he started off by saying, everybody in the audience, look to the person at your left. Now look to the person at your right. Of the three of you, one of you is going to die. And that's basically true. I mean, and it's, it's you know, I, I, so many people, so many people I know who were like my peers, you know, I'm 24, they're 24, whatever. And they died, you know, before their lives even really got going, before they really like knew who they were. And I basically spent my early 20s thinking that I'm probably going to die. Now, at this point, did they know how it was spread? Or, I mean, did was it under the superstition that all gay people were going to get HIV eventually and, and die? Well, I mean, they, they knew how it was spread. Mm -hmm. um, but here's the thing, right? It was... <sighs> Basically, what public health, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, was don't have sex with other men, period. There you go. There's our <laughs> best medical public health advice, right? But gay men themselves were basically, and one gay man in particular named Michael Callan, sat down with his doctor and basically said, okay, that doesn't work for me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not going to stop it. I can't cop stop having sex, right? 
I mean, at some point, I mean, how much of that do you think was like the government's way of saying like your sex is sinful and wrong and disgusting and this is how we're going to get you to stop? It's because if you have gay sex, this is what happens to you. All of it, all of it, all of it, all of it, because up until a couple of years, up until PrEP, okay, up until PrEP came on the scene, according to the CDC, when you give or get a blowjob... You should wear a condom. Which almost nobody does. I mean, I've had that happen to me one time, and I didn't even know. that, that Whoever did that, um, if you're listening, good job. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I looked down and I said, how did I get that condom on me? <laughs> no, but, but, but the thing well, yeah. is, like, is, there, is it possible that HIV can be transmitted between partners giving blowjobs? Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? The chances of getting HIV that way are infinitesimally small compared to the way you risk your life when you drive on the 10 freeway. You know, it is so much more likely that you're going to die in, you know, a fiery conflagration in an accident on the 10 freeway than it is that you're going to get HIV from a blowjob, right? But that the government is saying, like, use a condom every time, you know? Right. And as a result, all of us were left kind of to, and it wasn't like a ration thing. It wasn't reasoning your way through, but it was kind of like, okay, I've given like 10 blowjobs in the past 30 days. And oh my God, oh my God, here I am getting my HIV test. Oh my God, oh my God, I'm sure I'm positive. Oh my God, I don't want to die. And your test results come back negative, and you're like, huh, okay. You start to question whether or not you were just lucky, or if that is really a way that it's transmitted at that point. Now, I'm curious to know about your sexual activity at this point. I mean... Do, did you or, or did anybody you know at, at some point just say, you know what, I'm just not going to have sex until this is all figured out? Or were people afraid to have sex with each other? What was the dynamic there? Uh, there were not a small number of gay men who were basically like, I'm not having sex. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to go to the opera and I'm going to have a nice time on Fire Island during the summer and I'm going to jerk off. And that's all. And the other strategy was coupling. Two guys would go and get tested, and if they were both negative, that's it. We're boyfriends now. We're only going to have sex with each other, regardless of how terrifically incompatible as people (laughs) they might be. Yeah. And so there was this sort of like serial boyfriend phenomenon, you know, that happened where, yes, I'm completely, absolutely monogamous with... 42 men that I've been boyfriends with this year, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely do not, you know, have sex outside of whatever relationship I have to be in, happen to be in this weekend kind of thing. But, you know, I, and something that I kind of include in my book is, you know, fear is not a great motivator for making good choices because you know if a friend of yours who lives in the same neighborhood you do is coming home from work one night and gets beaten up and stabbed and robbed oh my god you're fucking terrified to go out after dark 
But your brain can't maintain a state of fear for too long. And eventually, you know, like, hey, we live in, Air- in California. We know there's a really big earthquake coming that's going to, like, destroy everything around us. We know that, and, you know, maybe at times, like, when there is a big, you know, quake, it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, that would be so terrible, oh, my God. But pretty quickly, we, like, talk ourselves in off the ledge, right? Right. We could do that with anything, including with, okay, I just came home from a bar with this guy, and he's really, really, really hot. He's, like, so many levels above me, and he wants to have sex with me. And it turns out that neither of us have condoms. Hmm. So I'm going to say, well, sorry, maybe make it another time and, you know, head home alone. No, I'm not going to do that. You know? And then you're, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then you get tested and one of two results, you know? Right. For gay men of my generation you know, who are like sexually active up until uh, 1997 when effective AIDS treatments like literally took people off their deathbeds if they had managed to hang on long enough until they got there. But up until then, like gay men of my generation had the experience of making the decision to have sex with somebody, even though that might mean I'm going to die and Mm -hmm. not die really quickly and quietly in my sleep, but I'm going to be, you know, in my own shit and piss and vomit, you know, and wasted down to a skeleton. And that's how, you know, and people, when my friends, if my friends come by to see me, when they come into the room, they're going to be like, (gasps) hi. Oh, wow. Hi. You know, you're going to die a pariah's death. And we made the decision that, like, sex was more important. The connection, the intimacy, the other person finding you sexually valuable, that experience was more important than death. Well, we're going to take a quick pause right here, and this will conclude our part one of Leather Talk with Drew. Don't forget to join us next week, where we will pick up this conversation and cover a plethora of other topics together. Before we go, don't forget to check out the many outreach programs we have available to us here in the Los Angeles area. The LALC Cares and Boulevard Pantry are some ways that you can get assistance during these trying times of COVID-19. I will have links in the description below. I would also like to invite any of you listeners out there who have never been a part of a Leather Talk Zoom party before to come and join us on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, where we live stream a portion of the podcast and have an open discussion with the guest of the show that week. Drew will actually be coming up in two or three parts even, so if you missed his Zoom party this week, then you can catch us next week. All audience members that are a part of the Zoom chat must be 18 years or older and must have their camera turned on. All attendees are expected to maintain a mature and respectful attitude towards one another. And these Zoom chats will become less frequent as we begin to open up. And hopefully we can have some more in-person events coming up soon. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.